Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. This show is brought to you by Jergens Wet Skin Moisturizer. Now you can lotion up on wet skin. And this sounds ridiculous. I actually use this product. It saves you time. Uh, and it also is just kind of a cool product. It absorbs like that. And they wanted me to snap in order to illustrate that. But I'm a person who cannot snap my fingers. It works like that. Snap fingers for softness all day. Jergens, let your beautiful shine. Hi, this is Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about allies and friends and the limits of allyship and friendship. And occasionally we have some difficult conversations. Uh, today's conversations, um, I think, are fascinating. Some of them are a little tough. I am first going to be talking to Linda Torado about poverty and about um, the awesome blue apron but cans uh, plan that the Trump administration introduced this week. And then I'll be talking to Jane Coaston about Rob Porter and what's been going on in that White House. And we will be answering a listener question about it. And then there's a third segment today, which is a little mini essay from me uh, about what happened in Parkland and mental health. Keeping in mind that these are the subjects of the show today, I'll just give you a heads up that if you're dealing with some of the things that we're talking about, you may want to use one of the resources that are available for mental health or sexual abuse uh, and those are the crisis text line, which is 741741, uh, and the suicide prevention lifeline, 800-273-8255. And if you have any reason to need to talk about sexual assault or abuse or harassment, please get in touch with RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. So RAIN with two wins.org, and they also can be reached via their National Sexual Assault Hotline, 800-656-HOPE. With all of that on the table... Please enjoy the show. This week, Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney told reporters about an awesome new idea. The Trump administration wants to cut food aid to low-income families and make up the difference with what he described as a blue apron type program. Mulvaney was worried that he might be stealing somebody's copyright by describing it that way, but I think he should be a lot more worried about associating blue apron, which is a expensive but very delicious sponsor of the show and meal kit service, with what the program uh, that he is describing actually entails. It is a once-a-month delivery of a box of cans. Plenty of people weighed in on Twitter and in columns about what a shitty idea this is. I don't think you have to be a genius to see the problems of logistics and scale involved here. But today's guest has a perspective I don't think we hear enough. She's actually been on food assistance programs, and she has been poor. 
I am delighted to have her on to talk about the shitty idea in the context of America's ongoing war on parens, people who live in in parens, poverty. Linda Torado, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Linda is an author and activist whose work has appeared in The Daily Beast, Wonkette, The Guardian, The Observer, and The Sydney Morning Herald. She's also the author of the really, really great book, which I just finished, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America, and of the Twitter taxonomy, A Field Guide to North American Sexists. All right, Linda. Blue apron, but cans. Yeah, well, I mean, what poor people actually needed was more food nobody can eat. Um, we needed more creamed corn in our lives, maybe some tinned tomatoes. That'll be fine. Bring back government cheese. There's no way this is going to be a wasteful boondoggle. Definitely, this is this is a step up um, as far as, you know, humiliating people. They're really, it, it actually, um, it, it's kind of impressive how bad this idea is. It's like they sat in a room and thought, okay, what's the stupidest shit we could possibly do? And then they came out with that. And then, of course, you're going to upbrand it, right? Like, of course you are. Like, what, what else would you do besides be like, all right, we're bringing back government cheese but we're going to call it Amazon Fresh. You know what I think it's like? It's like saying um, it's doing a really shitty mass transit system and calling it Uber. Like, yeah, no, it's 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 that time when they when Uber when Uber uh, invented the bus. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, we're going to drive around to pre-appointed points and it's going to be fine. It's it's that but for food. And the, the the thing that's actually enraging about it is that when you talk about nutritional requirements for the poor, um, people frequently talk about bulk calories, which is why they're like, there's going to be beans, there's going to be cans of food. Um, I will guarantee you that what's coming in that box is not going to make a palatable meal. I, I will guarantee you that up front. I believe this is the administration that brought us, um, you know, uh, Lunchables uh, for Puerto Rico, right? I mean, like, it was like a half a sandwich and some Twizzlers. Right, right. And 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 it's it's going to be that on a grander scale. And and at the end of the day, the point is to humiliate people. The point is to say you you are not allowed any more autonomy. You are not allowed any assistance. We are not going to be charitable. We want you to feel bad about yourself and about your station. Um, because for for whatever fucking reason, libertarians don't understand incentives, and Republicans don't understand incentives, and so they keep putting in all of these these incentives incentives, um, thinking, well, if we just make it a little worse, if we just make it a little worse, then maybe you'll go out and get a job. And, and what people really fail to understand is that most people that receive SNAP benefits actually are in work. It's just that, you know, their work doesn't pay anything. Um, and, and and so when you, when you get into these programs and you get into like, well, what are we doing and why are we doing it? We never talk about the social engineering. You talk about the money and you talk about the money you're going to save. But people really fail to understand that this is social engineering on a grand scale. I also wonder, like, how come we don't provide, like, uh, these kinds of incentives and punishments to people who, you know, borrow billions of dollars from the government, right? Like, why aren't why aren't they shamed? Like, maybe uh, you sh when you get your bank gets bailed out, you should have to, you know, that should come in a box of cans somehow. But I mean, look, obviously, it's it's more moral. Um, there's there's a definite moral difference. And if you're going to write off your three martini lunch at the taxpayer's expense, that's fine, because at least you're eating swanky food. But if you're eating on the low end, everybody's got to be in your business about it, um, which is 
one of the things that I say on Twitter a lot is anytime somebody goes, well, I want to know why poor people buy X, Y, and Z with public dollars. And I go, great, hand me your tax returns from last year and let's talk about your spending decisions. Um, And as soon as we're done with you, then we'll get to me. I also sometimes say that the people who argue that there should be drug testing for um, receiving kind of any kind of public assistance, we should have to drug test people who get mortgage write-offs and, you know, those bankers who, who get Dude, bailouts. Dude, drug test Congress. You know how much cocaine's in D.C.? <laughs> and also, I want to point out, this is the same week that we found out that Jared and Ivanka's debts turn out to be five times as big as they said they were. Um, I think Ivanka, her, the only debt that went down for her was one she owes Visa like $100,000. I, I, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Ivanka Trump. I think my brain just broke. And then, and yet we're, sh- the people we're shaming are the people who eat on, and you're going to have to remind me of the number. What is, what is the number for how much uh, people have to eat on if you're on public assistance? Um, well, it, so that depends on income. It might be anywhere from like 10 or $20 a month up to a, a few hundred, depending on your family size and depending on your income levels. Um, so when you're talking about public assistance, you go in, uh, you fill out the forms, and then they tell you you qualify for this, that, and the other program. Um, but the amount is changeable. And every time you make an extra penny over what you made when you first started, you have to go report that, and then they have to like go rerun your So you actually don't know how much you get every month if you have flexible uh, works because you have to you have to go in and get reassessed every time. One thing that I found really um, moving and uh, uh, something that resonated with me, I I almost want to give my like economic history to to contextualize where I'm coming from, which is that I guess what I would say is that I've been just poor enough to know that I've never been poor, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've always had parents to 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 turn to. I've always had family to turn to. I've always had resources to turn to. I've I've seen a zero bank account, but I've never thought that's what my life was going to be like forever. Right, and and that's that is, I think, the difference. Right, it's it, it very much is. It's a it's a wholly different mindset. So, um, people talk about like fast food. I, I largely worked in in bars and restaurants, um, and and occasionally in retail for for most of my adult life until like three years ago, when for some reason they made me a writer. And um, the people think about fast food jobs and they think that they're jobs for teenagers, but they don't understand that the majority of people who work in a fast food restaurant are going to be people in their 30s, 40s. They're people with children. Um, and this is their life. This is your life forever. Um, and, 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 and the stress and the humiliation of that, like when I was pregnant um, the first time, I had a woman actually throw a cheeseburger at me because it had mustard on it. Um, and she was very upset about the mustard. And like, I'm pretty pregnant. Like, this woman's assaulting me with food. And the next thing that happened was a customer said, oh, I'm so sorry. Can you get me some salt? Like, nobody, nobody reacted. Nobody said anything to this woman. Just go ahead and assault the cashier with your cheeseburger, and then can I have the salt? And, and, and living under that every single day and knowing that that's your status, knowing that that's your station, knowing that people make fun of your job, like, you're on the bottom of the damn food chain. And, and other people think that they should look down on you for that, even though there aren't any other jobs. And it's, it's, it's kind of like psychic depression, um, that, that that really never does go away. And that it, it's the difference between this is my life forever versus this is the thing I just got to get through. Yeah, I, I was going to say that 
your descriptions of poverty resonated me, but with me, but not because I've ever been really poor, but because I've suffered, you know, clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think is the thing that I've been through that's most like poverty. I yeah, the, I I don't honestly, want if you don't mind my saying that I you know I, I no no I, no, I'm no foregrounding I that I don't Venn, actually know the Venn between trauma and depression and poverty is a circle. Yeah, it's um when when you are very poor. Um, and, and again, when you are very poor and you know you're going to be poor forever, then you understand that you have no value to this society. Nobody will miss you if you die unless they need to cover your shift. Um, it, it, people uh, feel free to tell you that you're stupid and worthless and, and useless and that you have no value. And they tell you this every single day in millions of ways, both vocal and not large and small. It's this it's constant, relentless understanding that you're not worth anything. Um, and, and, and that is incentivized, uh, and, and that's shown to you, you know, for example, like we're, we're what, bringing back workhouses for Medicaid? <laughs> like, you, you, you got to go to work and then take a health literacy test before you can see a doctor in Kentucky now. I mean, and all of those things add up and all of those things are, are part of your self-awareness and they're part of how you see yourself moving through the world. So, I mean, I would say depression is a perfect metaphor, really, or it's a very good comparison. And I feel like we should foreground here, too, that even your discussion of poverty, you went went into poverty or you experienced poverty with even the relative privilege of like a, a white appearance. Oh, yeah, dude, I'm... I mean, look, let's be clear. I wouldn't have a career if I wasn't a cute white lady. I mean, when the the, the reason I, be, I, I became a writer because I, I was drunk and left a very long comment on Gawker. Um, and, and for some reason, people thought it was an essay. And then it went like super viral, right? Um, and, and a thing that I always tell people when I'm lecturing or giving a speech is like, I would not be here if I was black. I would not be here if I was 50. I would not be here if I was in a wheelchair. I, I am here because I happen to be an articulate, young, cute white lady with a, a Marine husband and two jobs at the time. And I'm going to school. I was the perfect narrative for poverty because there was nothing I was doing wrong at that moment. There was nothing. Now, had you come to me six months earlier or six months later, that wouldn't have been the case. And I, and, and, and the fact that it, it really is that much lightning, like I went through hell. I had millions of people. CNN called me one of the biggest frauds of 2013, said I wasn't poor enough. And then I had other people going, well, you can't be poor. You speak English too well. You know too many big words. I'm like, what the hell do you think is going on where we've got homeless academics? Like, there's a PhD working the line next to me. Like, poverty isn't something, it happens to most people. You come in and out of it. It's it's not a static state. It's, It's a thing that continues to happen to you. And every time you almost have climbed out, Something else will happen and drag you down to the bottom. But it doesn't have anything to do with your brain power or your potential or or anything like that, even though everybody likes to pretend that it does. And we were talking about the humiliations of being poor and the constant messaging that you are not worth anything, that society would be better off without you. I feel like we should be very clear that 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 mindset, that message that policy sends is not something that's specific to Republican policy. 
No, well, I, it, look, it, meritocracy is not a, a problem that is limited to the right wing. Um, it, it, it is something that we are all trained to. We all live in this society and we have all bought into the notion that if you have money, you must have earned it. That's how you got the money. And that happens on the right and the left. Like, I come in for as much help from Democrats as I ever do about Republicans because, it, look, it's it, there is not— there are not many politicians in America from either party who understand what the problem is and how to fix it. Like it, 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 the the number of backwards, condescending policies that have come out of both the right and the left, because nobody ever asks poor people what they need, right? You're going to set up a commission. You're going to set up a study. You're going to sit in your rich people space, and you're going to come up with an idea to help those poor people over there. You're not going to ask the poor people what they need. You're not going to ask them if the policy is counterproductive. You're just going to decide that, you know, for example, the drug testing. Well, obviously, everybody on welfare is high, right? Even though we know that people on welfare have a lower drug use rate than the general population. Do you know why? Because they're fucking poor and drugs are expensive. Are you are you people high when you come up with this shit? I actually like, want to, I'm going to, I've been here because I, what you said is really important, which is that it's a rich space and, and generally a rich white space. And I think we on the left who consider ourselves progressive, who consider ourselves like civil rights advocates, um, and diversity advocates often don't consider class as a component of diversity. I think usually don't consider class as a component of diversity. Like we all don't have trouble when we see a group of men making women's health care policy. People recognize that as being insane. Or when right. we see a group of white people making policy, you know, about civil rights, we recognize that as being insane. But when we see a bunch of rich people making policy about poor people, we're like, well, of course. That is because we've bought this bullshit meritocracy thing, and it, it, it's it's it, it really is it's it's this kind of weird snake eating its own tail thing. Um, so I I frequently now get calls to come and help uh, think tanks, uh, researchers, academics, Silicon Valley, and all these people want to know like, okay, well, how do we talk to poor people? Like, and 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 that'll be a question I'm actually asked. Um, in fact, here's an anecdote. Um, so I'm talking to somebody whose name you would know uh, in media, uh, very liberal, very left, um, super, super, super great praxis, perfect, right? Person actually asked me, so when you go talk to poor people, how do you start that conversation? And I'm looking at this person going like, well, you say, hello, my name is. That's it. That's how you start the conversation. We're not like an alien fucking species. We're literally just people. Like, there's poor people everywhere. You can talk to anybody. <laughs> just go and start the conversation. But it, it's this this belief that um, it, it's kind of this alien species. It's this whole nother thing. And the trouble with class and the reason we don't talk about it, it's the one fungible thing. You cannot change skin color. You cannot. Like, well, we obviously. think it's fungible, right? Right. But the thing is, is if you consider class as a wealthy person, there is something you could be doing. You could give something up. You could be giving up some of your station. You could be sharing some of that status. You can't share white privilege with with somebody who does not have white skin. You can share your money. And so that makes it this kind of uncomfortable moral component in any in any conversation about class or between the classes where I'm literally looking at the rich people going like, yeah, are you going to give up 2% of your 401k to stop a child from starving? Oh, no, you're not. 
When it comes to bra shopping, it is all about finding the right fit for you. And there is only one lingerie brand that offers bras in sizes AA through G, as well as half cup sizes, and that is Third Love. Third Love uses thousands of real women's measurements and super smoothing memory foam to create bras that fit better and feel great. Did you know that most old school bra brands only carry 15 sizes? It is true. Third Love has 60 sizes, including half cups. No one else has half cups, my friends. I am a Third Love user, wearer, I guess I should say, user too, perhaps. Um, They are super comfortable. They have a racer back bra that is uh, constantly sold out. Um, I have not yet pulled strings to get my own, despite the fact that they are sold out, but perhaps this will remind me to do so. To find the bra that you've been waiting for, all you have to do is answer a few simple questions on the Third Love Fit Finder quiz. It takes 60 seconds and you can do it from the comfort of your home. You will never have to have an awkward fitting room experience again. So try a Third Love bra. It is so comfortable you might forget you're wearing it. And if you don't agree, returns and exchanges are always easy and free. So this year, make the change that will change the way you think about bras. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends right now to find your perfect fitting bra and you will get 15% off your first purchase. That is thirdlove.com slash friends, thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off your first purchase. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I'm still thinking about this idea where we have a a group of rich people and ask them to make policy about poverty. Um, And the policy turns out to be, you should just be rich. Yes. Um, It is like having a bunch of white people make policy about civil rights, where in their end recommendation is, well, you should be white. Yes, it very much is. So there are similarities and differences in these identities, right? But it's the way that we treat class as... um, a moral is moral. Yeah, it's it's is and also that we take for granted that when we have money, when we have economic privilege, that that is somehow, you know, fundamentally different than white privilege, let's say. Yeah, because it, we earn our money. 
That's that's how we think about it. We earned this. We don't stop to think about the fact that, no, 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 you were a legacy student, all right, and you were raised by parents who taught you how to handle money. Um, and, you know, all of these things that come into your class and your class background. Um, it, for example, uh, and, and unf- the nation actually had to, to write an article about this. I, I used to work in politics. I worked in campaign politics when I was very young, um, kind of canvassing, knocking doors, working in the field. Um, but I had been in a car accident and chipped my front teeth and my teeth started to go. And then I didn't have a career anymore. That's how I wound up in food service was I didn't have dentist. And and the the fact that 10 years later, you could go back and ask my old bosses and they went, yeah, we can't have her as the public face. Mm-hmm. That's why we, we couldn't keep her. She was a great worker. She was really good. But nobody wants to talk to somebody like that as the, the public face of a campaign. And you also talked about it in, the, in your book about how a lot of these uh, places in our, our world that we think of as being kind of truly merit-based, like let's say media and politics, are closed mm-hmm. to poor people. Like you, you can't afford to become a journalist if, if you're poor. You can't afford to become a politician. Uh, because you just don't have the time and the money to create that space for to do a lot of work for free at first. Basically. I mean, look, you can't run for office. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party both, you've got to pay fees. You've got to pay for van access. You've got to pay for all of these things. If you don't already have a funder's network, nobody's going to give you that first round of funding and say, go ahead and run, see how you do. Like, there's not grants for poor people to get involved civically. And even if we could, we're too busy working. We don't know when we're—I I didn't know when I was allowed to pee. Like, I had to ask permission and wait until my boss thought it was a good time for me to go to a bathroom. Like, I can't guarantee I'm going to do it. The, it, it the, the access is not there because the support isn't there. And moreover, the assumption is that we're not interested, right? And even if we were, we're incapable. So, um, like, I don't have a degree. Um, but I lecture at Ivy League schools now. Like my book is canon in in sociology programs in the Ivy League. And so every time I go to a university, um, I apply as an undergrad. And I have been rejected by every single university that teaches my work <laughs> because I, I'm not prepared. I'm not in a place where they go, this is a good candidate to be a student at our university. But they will teach my book. They will bring me into lecture. They will ask me impertinent questions. And then they tell me that I'm not good enough to learn from them. Like, that's my life now. It's still an insult every single day. It's the most amazing thing. Any discussion of how uh, neoliberalism and the idea of meritocracy has uh, been just as bad for poor people as any Republican policy would be incomplete if I did not mention uh, Bill Clinton's, uh, you know, uh, welfare reform. (laughs) Uh, which okay. is kind so of... many reasons I cannot stand the Clintons <laughs> and I can't. OK, so I spent all of 2016 going, I'm not going to vote for that woman until until it was Donald Trump. And then you like clearly you got to do what you got to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And and everybody kept going like you're just internalizing sexism. And I'm like, no, I'm fucking poor. Do you know what the Clintons, do you know what a curse word the word Clinton is amongst the poor? We all remember that shit, man. We all remember it. Welfare reform happened in mid-90s. I was a kid at the time. But every single time I've had to answer a question like, who are you having sex with and how frequently? Because we need to make sure we're not wasting state funds. I knew that was Bill Clinton. Yeah. And like, nope. (laughs) 
And to be to for people who don't know, do you want to explain like how <laughs> the words welfare reform are connected to the words who are you having sex with? Yeah. Uh, so. If you are on benefits uh, of any sort, you have to report to the government who's living in your home um, so that they can be sure that you don't have any second incomes or, or any other income that you're not talking about. So when you go in, you have to fill out this form that says, okay, who stayed over and how frequently in the last month so that they can make an assessment of whether that's a partner or not. Um, and, and, and that makes sense as far as cost control, but the lived experience of it was like a dude actually sat across from me and said, all right, I need to know who you're sleeping with. Mm. And and how often does he stay over? So, and the more more broadly, welfare reform uh, it gave control a lot of control to states on put restrictions on welfare, and it also made a requirement for to do something called welfare to work. Um, which do you want oh to explain God. that? Uh, yeah. Uh, so essentially, that's the idea that poor people are just feckless assholes who don't want to work. And so we're going to give them some help and support so that we can teach them the value of fucking work, even though we're not going to raise the minimum wage above $7.25 an hour. Um, so, uh, for example, the welfare to work program, I, I, I applied for benefits um, and they told me that I was going to have to go to a resume writing class in order to receive the benefits. And I said, OK, well, I, I would have to miss a shift at work to do that. And they said, well, you're going to have to decide whether or not you want the job or the welfare. That's welfare to work. It's it's um, when people design these programs, they do it out of their own context. And so they think to themselves, okay, well, why would you be poor? Okay, well, you must just not have skills. You must be lazy. You must need somebody to explain to you that you should have gainful employment. And then they try to take away the barriers, but it's this incredibly paternalistic and incredibly backwards way of thinking um, where they're just putting in all of these restrictions on the assumption that they're needed. Um, so now you're not allowed to receive welfare uh, unless you're on disability or you're within, I think it's two weeks of giving birth mm. um, without doing a job search every single week. You have to turn in and, and let them know, um, you know, where did you go look for work? Did you ask for more hours at work? Why are you working less now? Um, because the, the the assumption is that any money that's being spent on you is a waste of taxpayer dollars and that you're fleecing the government because, you know, what everybody fucking wants is to be that humiliated at the store, right? right? Like, come and talk to me about my food choices some more. The, the fucking soda restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. Where everybody, why, why are they buying all of this food that they don't need? Well, because I wanted to taste a nice thing mm -hmm. just once. Fuck you. <laughs> uh. And your book goes into a lot of detail about the so-called bad choices that poor people make. Um, and it's, and it's actually, again, it sort of reminds me of, of the experience of depression in that some of these things that someone else might call a bad choice is a way of self, of experiencing self-care, right? Mm -hmm. It's um, I'm going to buy a piece of expensive meat because, you know what, my life is shit and I want to taste something good tonight. You know, mm -hmm. it may not it's, it may not be the best choice. It may not be the wisest use of my money. Do you know what's interesting to me is poor people never have birthdays or anniversaries <laughs> or Valentine's Day. Yeah, there's never a good reason to celebrate. You're never allowed to enjoy anything because if you do, you should be wearing your hair shirt more properly. 
you should be more aware of your state. You should not ever forget that you are the lowest of the low. You should never feel a nice human thing because if you do, then how do we know that you're ashamed of yourself enough? I We're going to have to wrap this up, but I wanted to mention if people are curious, we've been, you and I have been ragging on a lot of different policies having to do with poverty. I don't know how what your opinions are as far as recommendations, but I will simply point out that so far as I know, uh, the studies that I've seen, the best way to solve poverty is to give people money. Give poor people money and they won't be poor anymore. Yeah. And also it's the best, really for instance, as it also the best way to solve homelessness is to put people in homes. Uh, yeah. These two things have been shown to be remarkably effective. Uh, and the universal basic income and also in places that have tried this where you just you don't try and get, uh, for instance, if it's an addict or a person with a mental illness uh, right now, the weird thinking is first you get them unaddicted and, and you cure their mental illness and then they get to have a house. Right. Um, like stability isn't the thing that's causing the <laughs> right. to places that have said, you know what, let's just give you a fucking home. Let's just give you a place to live. And we'll work on whatever the other problems are after you have a place to live. That works remarkably well. It is so far beyond immoral that we live in a nation this wealthy with this much land, with these many resources, and there are people who are starving and cold on the street. And the fact that we haven't solved that is entirely down to will and political will and moral will. And the fact that we don't insist on it is, is, is shameful. There should not be people dying on the street in the wealthiest nation in the world. We could stop this tomorrow, and we choose not to, because if we stopped it, we would have to admit what we'd done. We would have to admit that there, there is more value in these lives that we've been wasting, that we ourselves aren't the ones that have all of the value that those people do too. And, and, and we don't do it because we would have to give something up. And it, it's it's really astounding to me um, that, that that people just will not give anything up for another human being. And that's the note we're going to have to end on. Um, something for people to think about. Invite me to all of your dinner parties. I'm a fantastic <laughs> conversationalist. It always goes well. Um, I don't. I would not mind that at all. But uh, we, we, you and I, might have the same idea about what's a fun dinner party, uh, which might be different from other people's. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us. I'll remind everyone your fantastic book, "Hand to Mouth: Living in Bootstrap America," which is apparently you know a canon in Ivy League schools. It's also just a delightful read. Uh, short, if if anyone's wondering. Um, and you can just, you, you can sit down and read it and you will be a better person when you finish. Uh, thank you so much, Linda. You know, we're, we're going to have to have you back on again, I think. Anytime. So parachute, uh, sheets and towels. I think I talk about them a lot. They're one of the products that, uh, not only I can endorse personally, but I can tell you that my husband loves. Uh, they've sent us a few things and I actually bought some things after they sent us samples because I loved it so much. Um, the sheets are amazing. Uh, we have the linen sheets in dark blue. And what I have discovered since getting a puppy is that they really do get softer as you wash them because uh, because I've kind of had to wash them a lot. Let's, I won't go into detail about why, um, but they've been washed and they get softer. We also have parachute towels, which I 
genuinely now cannot go back to other people's towels because the third love bath sheets are enormous. And in these cold Minnesota winters, it is great to step out of the shower and have a towel that like fully engulfs you. Um, They were dirty the other day. And so I had to use another uh, company's so-called bath sheet. And I was like, "Uh this doesn't wrap around me the way that I want it to. So so highly endorse parachutehome.com uh, slash friends. You will get free shipping and returns for parachutes of very comfortable bedding and bath linens. They have other stuff too. I am sure it is also great. That's parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. I will remind you when you return something, they donate it to Habitat for Humanity. Super comfortable and very stylish stuff. You'll get a 60-night trial. And if you don't love it, just send it back again. Parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. Our next discussion is about White House aide Rob Porter, and I probably don't need to give you a ton of context for that. But just in case the last week has quite understandably kind of, you know, made your mind a bit of a whirlwind, Porter was credibly accused of domestic assault by two ex-wives and an ex-girlfriend, and the White House has not been able to get its story straight, that's being generous, about when and whether they knew about these allegations and about whether or not those allegations, once they were known, were a cause of concern. Jane Coaston has been writing about Porter and why his story matters in the context of Trump for Vox. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, like I said, Jane is a reporter at Vox. She covers the White House, the GOP, and the 2018 midterm elections. Before she was at Vox, she was a colleague of mine at MTV News. And her work has appeared at the Washington Post, New York Times, ESPN, The Ringer, SB Nation, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So, Jane, um, you know, the Porter story has been talked about a lot. Uh, I think there's definitely like a through line um, in the Trump administration uh, stories that that connects right up to this one. But I'm wondering if you think there's anything in the Porter story that tells us something that we didn't already know about this White House. So John Kelly, when he came in in the end of July of 2017, there was a lot of talk about how he was going to kind of end the chaos and kind of make the White House work more effectively and efficiently. Adult in the room. I I believe that was the phrase that we got. Yes, the adult in the room. And I think that I don't think that was ever really true. But I think (laughs) that the Porter scandal and especially Kelly's role in it really put the lie to that because it's just been from beginning to end a complete cluster of people introducing new timelines or repeatedly lying especially in the face of incredibly credible evidence from Rob Porter's former wives. And what is your understanding of what's actually happened? You've been reporting on this. Do you do you have an idea or is it just too it's just too chaotic and too much of us to even like tease out? Um I think that what we've seen again and again is that Kelly is the kind of person who like Trump Uh, puts loyalty above everything else. And I think that in this case, Kelly was willing to put Porter above the credible evidence against him. And then, you know, when that evidence was made public, his first reaction was to deny the charges. And his second reaction was to say that these were new allegations and he was shocked by them. But again and again, we've seen not only, you know, first Politico did some great reporting and has done some great reporting on this. 
we see that Kelly knew that he would be denied, that Porter would be denied a security clearance back in January. And that Kelly knew at least by November of 2017 about the allegations against Porter. And then CNN reported today that Jenny Willoughby received a call from Rob Porter asking, you know, did you tell the FBI anything about me being violent? Because I'm hearing in the White House that that's why my background check has been delayed. Now, as Porter and Kelly worked extremely closely together, I, you know, one can surmise that the person from whom Porter got that information would have been Kelly. And so that backs up our timeline even more to September. And let's also note that this, you know, the FBI interviewed Porter's ex-wives as part of this background check in January of 2017. They had all of this information. According to the FBI's Christopher Wray during um, a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing earlier this week, they finished their investigation into Porter in July 2017. The White House asked for additional information, which it received in November. So again and again, there keeps being more evidence that Kelly knew a lot more than he was saying and decided that it wasn't, it didn't merit either demoting Porter or getting rid of Porter in any way. In fact, that, you know, there's been some reporting that the, that Porter is being considered for a major promotion. Was me. Even, yeah. Yeah, even while, you know, not only was his background check being delayed, but Kelly was aware that he would be den- denied a permanent security clearance because of what took place. So I have so many kind of disparate thoughts about this story. <laughs> like there's this one that's kind of this overarching, you know, the chaos of the White House and the bending of rules and the messiness, just the, the sheer, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no other way, there's no other word, chaos, right? I, I, I cannot think of other words to describe it. And to me, I want to remind people that that's actually a hallmark of authoritarianism. It's not like these guys are so terrible, they can't get their shit together to be Nazis. Like this is what authoritarianism often looks like. Uh, Because people bend the rules to fit their personal needs, you wind up with chaos and you wind up people like people taking shortcuts like this Uh, and people lying, which is also what is happening. Right. And I also think that, you know, I did some looking into Kelly's kind of background. And as I mentioned, for both Trump and Kelly, there is a real sense that, you know, if you're a team player and you're loyal to either Trump or to Kelly, they will defend you for pretty much the rest of time. And, you know, in 2016, Kelly defended a Marine colonel who was eventually convicted of sexual misconduct, who got arrested again on essentially... Uh, charges of sec- of sexually molesting three children. Right. And yet, you know, when Kelly spoke up on behalf of, as a character witness in the court-martial of that Marine colonel, he called the colonel a, supre- a superb Marine officer and was completely willing to defend him and basic, you know, basically talked about what a great guy this person was. And, so, and you know, we saw the same thing happen when the, allegation, when the Daily Mail first published its allegations against Porter. One of, you know, in that first piece, it includes a comment from John Kelly talking about what a wonderful guy Rob Porter was. And you see that even in Trump's own comments about Rob Porter, about how he's got a great career ahead of him. He denies the allegations. He is so great. He's very loyal. This is all wonderful. And it's it's really interesting how, you know, for this with for people within this administration, loyalty usurps pretty much any other quality. 
Right, because that gets us to the, the other thing that's really important about this story, which is it's about the abuse of women. <laughs> right. That it, it's about, uh, you know, at this point we have to say systemic, right? Like systemic to this White House, not just cultural patriarchy, but systemic abuse of women by the people who run the country, like individually. Like that's right. what's happening. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it that's, you know, within this White House, if you are a man who is accused of something by a woman, the White House will believe you. No matter, you know, no matter the evidence against you, the White House's first instinct will be to believe you. You know, I, I found it very funny that Axios and a couple of other outlets had all these anonymous quotes talking about how Trump thought that Porter was a sick puppy. But when Trump got in front of the cameras and was asked about it on Friday, his reactions were not was not to call Porter a sick puppy. It was to thank him for all of his great service and tell him what a wonderful job he'd done. Well, well he is opposed to domestic violence, though. You know, unlike, gosh, where that pro-domestic violence lobby that's so strong. Uh, at least we have Donald Trump to fight against it, right? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I actually, so I want to dig into these accusations a little bit and maybe from a perspective that people might not expect, which is this idea that has come up to take seriously the idea that Rob Porter may not be a terrible person, (laughs) if that makes sense to anyone. I got a letter from a listener that I want to want to see if we can we can tackle that has to do with taking the defense of Rob Porter somewhat seriously. And let's listen to it right now. Hi, Anna and everyone who works on the pod. I'm 24 and from Saratoga Springs, New York. My dad was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic. He went to rehab when I was in high school, around 16 years old, and has been clean since, but it wasn't before damage was done. He hit my mom, he hit my older brother, who's 26, and he hit me. I moved out twice because of it, once before he hit me and once after. The second time wasn't because of abuse, but our relationships have never been great. It got so bad once I thought I might have to kill him so the rest of us could survive. I've had to live with that ever since. As I still struggle to understand how I feel about my own father, I really struggled with the Rob Porter situation. I'm clearly not a person with any sympathy for the situation. But if there was any past instance on someone's resume, are they disqualified from any future role in public service? I'm not asking for Porter specifically. I'm wondering on the whole if the act is at all redeemable at that level. Can someone commit that horror and then change to serve society? So um, I don't mind sort of putting my cards on the table first here, which is that as people who listen to the show probably you know already are aware, I'm in recovery um, and I'm a Christian. The idea that people can be redeemed and changed is actually a pretty fundamental thing for me. That said, I don't know if if that's the real question here, right? Right. And, you know, I think that it's it's important to separate what this would mean in a different, you know, in a different line of work or with a different person and what this means in this specific instance, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, I want to I want to point out that the the security clearance process for the White House or for this country serving this country has not always been something that's fair uh, or that makes sense. And it's often reflected the, the times, you know, there, there was a time when being gay would have uh, meant that you could, couldn't get security clearance. Uh, right. And so, and it all has to do with it. And it's interesting. Cause I think that this is an important note is that um, 
the security clearance process and you know the SF eighty six the paper you know kind of the paper you file in order to get this clearance and the eventual many 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 questions that you are asked by the FBI. Um, if you were looking for a clearance, I don't know if anyone listening has ever helped a friend who was doing getting a background check done for a security clearance, but the FBI will come and sit with you and ask you a great deal of questions about your friends. Mm-hmm. And it's very long and involved. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, is this person vulnerable to blackmail? And, you know, with with regards to um, you know, someone being gay or lesbian, you know, people were concerned that someone would be vulnerable to blackmail over. And also the same with drug use, also the same with kind of other potential security risks. It has, you know, it it has less to do with, you know, the morality or immorality of a specific behavior and more to do with could this person be blackmailed into harming the United States government as a result of this fact about them? The U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business, uh, reaching every household every day. Um, I think of the Postal Service as one of the often unsung heroes of our federal bureaucracy. Um, When you think about it, what they do on a regular basis is pretty amazing. But stamps.com can make the U.S. Postal Service better. It is the easiest way to access all of the amazing services that the post office already has. It never closes, for instance. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. I can mail personally any letter, any package using just my computer and printer, and the mail carrier picks it up. I have used it to return stuff uh, for places that, unlike parachute sheets, don't have free returns. Uh, I have used it to mail out books. Um, I have used it for personal stuff. If you are a home business, though, if you're a sole proprietor LLC like myself, you'll find a ton of uses for it. And you can mail everything from postcards to packages internationally. So buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page and type in friends. You will get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Again, stamps.com, there is a microphone at the top. Type in friends and you will get a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Stamps.com. Click the microphone. Friends. Like in a weird way, like Porter's security clearance shouldn't have been um, a question at all because in this country right now, at least to judge by the White House, you couldn't be blackmailed about having beaten your wives. Right. Like that would, it would not, it's like you could openly beat your wives um, and so it shouldn't be a problem that, you know, why, why would anyone need to blackmail you? Um, right, exactly. And I also want to say, cause I think that this person is doing something that a lot of people are doing, um, who are critics of the Me Too movement, which is they're equating having a job, uh, with some kind of personal or spiritual status. Uh, the idea that a job is a sign of redemption. And in fact, like when I opened by saying like, I believe in redemption, Like, I believe that Rob Porter can be redeemed. I believe that he can change. I really do. I don't know if he deserves to work in the White House. Those are two different things. Very different things. Much in the same way, like, I believe that that some of the people that have been accused of assaulting women or harassing women, I believe they can change. Do they deserve to have book contracts and TV shows? Maybe not. 
Right. And I think that there's a sense, I you know, this is something that really annoys me when people talk about like, oh, there's due process. I'm like, due process is a legal term. You do not have a legal right to work in the White House or to be a movie producer or to be in a movie or to work at a particular place. You know, if it's an at will environment, someone could fire you for sneezing too loudly if they wanted to, like, let alone, you know, sexually harassing someone or you know, being engaged in domestic violence. Right. And I think that, um, like, I was just thinking that he asked specifically is uh, if there's a past instance of, you know, assault or abuse on someone's resume, are they disqualified for any role, future role in public service? There's lots of different ways to be of service. You know, if you've really right. changed, like I've said about, you know, Al Franken, like I, I was uh, for him resigning. I'm glad that he resigned. But you know what? If he wants to be in public service, that's great. You know, he can do that. Right. He's a rich guy who can make a lot of donations, who can do a lot of fundraising. He can even run for Senate again. And I might even vote for him if he can make an argument that I believe. Yeah, because you would have considered the allegations against him and he would have admitted to the allegations against him. And then, you know, there could be the argument could be taken from there. But yeah, I think that and also, you know, the idea that public service can only be achieved within this relatively small environment of, you know, being in the White House or being on Capitol Hill, you know, there's a lot of other things you can do to help your country and help your fellow man and help your neighbors that does not involve, you know, working in the Oval Office as staff secretary. <laughs> or working with highly classified documents. Like, I, exactly. It's funny. I'm really glad you explained sort of the, the why the FBI check is the way that it is and it, that it's about, you know, blackmail and not necessarily moral qualifications. But I do feel like in this particular instance, it should be this is a moral thing. Like, I kind of think that someone who has a history of domestic abuse shows a psychological makeup that maybe they're not uh, totally safe to be dealing with, you know, high clearance stuff. Like, it sounds like they have an anger issue. <laughs> you know, it sounds like maybe not they're to- they're not well balanced. Uh and you should have to meet a higher bar if you're going to do this stuff. It's supposed to be an honor. I mean, people have talked about this before, but we've kind of lost sight of this. It's supposed to be an honor to do this. Show. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you're not supposed to have, you know, it, it's not a right. Mm-hmm. You you know, and I, I think that that's something that has, I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. <laughs> I'm glad I brought no, it up. Was, I was like, there, there's nothing I can add except I agree. Yes, I, I, I can. You know, with firm nodding. Yes. Well, you're and I. You know, our conversations like sometimes do go like that. I agree with you a lot too. Um, I, I guess I want to go back and, and sort of direct address this guy pretty directly, which is that I feel like you know he gave this context about his his personal life for the question about Porter, and I want to really make a distinction between the two. And, or, or at least sort of offer a, if, a way in which if they're parallel, um, it's helpful, which is that much in the same way that I, I think, you know, Rob Porter could change and do some good for the country. I think that his relationship with his dad, I, I'm hopeful for him, like for sure. You know, again, like as someone in recovery, uh, I, I have changed, right? But the way that I, the way that that works in my life is I just get to one day at a time you know, person by person, act by act, show the world that I'm different than how I used to be. And the world right. gets to judge me for it. Right. And I think that that's something, you know, there's, it's interesting how 
you know, a kind of mantra of the right used to be something about personal responsibility. <laughs> and it's important to, you know, that that does matter. It's important to live it out. Yeah. And consequences also. They used to be real big fans of consequences. Uh, but, you know, like this is I, I believe like that could be almost the motto of the Trump White House, like consequence free. It's a consequence free environment. Right. And, you know, it's. It's frustrating because I think that that's the thing, you know, you have this for, you know, I think for a lot of people observing politics, you kind of had a fulcrum around which things worked Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you did a thing, there would be consequences and you would no longer be allowed to do that thing. (laughs) If you said something and that thing was stupid and bad, people would say that's stupid and bad and you shouldn't be allowed to do that anymore, especially within this, you know, while having this very elite job. That this elite job, as you said, was not an was an honor, and it was not some sort of like right bestowed upon you by some higher entity. And it, it's it's challenging when you're operating without that fulcrum. You know, it it's it's very you because know, I you know I've been doing some writing on John Kelly and his status. And it's funny because, you know, someone asked me, like, so is he going to get fired or resign? I'm like, I have absolutely no idea because there is no kind of guiding principle by which he would either be for sure fired or for sure kept on. Yeah. Well, you know, if that's because as many people have pointed out, if this White House started clearing out domestic abusers, well, they'd, they'd have to start at the top. So, you know, like they, they can't throw him out. Like we we need a new or or you know we'd have to accept President Pence, which is right still 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 bad, still 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 not good. Um, all right, thank you so much, Jane. Like we have a lot to catch up on at some point. We do. Um, I'll be at yes. CPAC next week. Uh, oh, excellent! Yeah. I will also be at CPAC. All right. Well, you and I will be at CPAC, and that's also like a tease for everybody um, for an upcoming show. Uh, and hopefully, you and I can grab a cup of coffee. Thanks again for coming on. Of course, thank you. So I had a rough week, and I wish I could tell you it was because of the tragedy in Parkland, but to be totally honest, it was not. Uh, But it's because my rough week wasn't about Parkland, but also because of Parkland, I want to talk to you about my rough week. It was bad, mainly because my brain is not wired like everyone else's. I take meds, and that keeps it running mostly smoothly. Uh, But sometimes I get low on sleep or I slack off on eating healthy or the wind blows the wrong way or someone looks at me funny and I get depressed. But, you know, it's one of the benefits of being mentally ill in the way that I am that I actually don't spend a lot of time looking for the one thing that, if it was different, would make me feel better. The one thing that would make me Guaranteed to never feel depression again would be a new brain, and I'd become somewhat attached to the one that I have. And I mean, the if only X would happen, I would be happy game is a fun one to play, and I still spend a lot of time playing it, but I am getting better at just letting my dark feelings happen while also practicing some self-care and staying in touch with people who can help. I get to do those things in part because I've embraced the fact that I have a mental illness. I'm not ashamed of it, because I know that feeling shame about my mental illness will make it worse. 
feeling shame about my mental illness could kill me. And indeed, it once almost did. And that is why I take pretty seriously the discussions that people are having right now about whether or not the mentally ill should be able to own guns. I think talking like that defines a whole category of people who are my people as inherently dangerous, as killers, as evildoers. And that kind of talk shames us. And it puts us at risk. Not because of the violence that we might do to others, but because of the violence we do to ourselves. I want to make very clear that I am generally for more gun restrictions, not fewer But I think it should be difficult for anyone to get a gun. I think it should be especially difficult for people with a history of violence to get a gun. But lumping together those with a history of violence and threatening violence with people who have a mental illness is as discriminatory and actually as inaccurate as linking violence and race or violence and religion. Anytime we make gun control about the identity of who gets to have guns— rather than the demonstrated history of the gun owner or the guns themselves, we are doing bigots work for them. We are adding weight to stereotypes and stigma. And this is the most important thing I want to say today. I talk about not stigmatizing the mentally ill because I have a mental illness. I talk about suicide prevention because I am a suicide attempt survivor. If you struggle... If you need help, I am here to tell you, you are not evil, you are not the problem, and you are not alone. There's a trigger warning at the beginning of this show, and I'm going to put the numbers for the crisis text line and the National Suicide Lifeline in the show notes. And again, if you are struggling, if you have thoughts of self-harm, please use these resources or any other resources you have available There are local crisis centers and there are campus crisis centers. If you're a person of faith, you could find help in that community. Google can help. Your friends can help. And the helplines can help. I used to have, I think, what is a pretty normal uh, hesitation to actually use a crisis helpline. I thought of them as sort of like 911, and I thought they should be used only by people who really, really needed them. And I thought that my mental health was my responsibility and I shouldn't bother other people with it and I should just be taking care of it somehow. And so I held back from calling until one day it was bad enough. I thought it might be considered a crisis like an objective way. And so I called and the person on the other end of the line asked me how I was and I told her I was having some dark thoughts but I wasn't sure if it was an emergency. And she said, Well, is it an emergency for you? The idea that the pain that I was in, in and of itself, deserved her attention, whether or not it met the objective idea of a crisis or an emergency, was a revelation to me. I still think about this woman and what she said. She saved my life that day which helped me get to today. So, again, please, you are not alone. You deserve the help that is available to you. And most of all, know this. 
you are loved. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.